This song is not a rebel song. Shall we play a game? I am Sammy Daddy. Many students were killed. Feel right now. I'm very angry. He was rather the poor were poorer, provided the rich were less rich. Naughty, naughty. We like the party. Automobile. Oh, Rick, to think that I may never see you again. I think you did it on purpose because you know I've got a runny bottom. I'm Kurt Loder. This is MTV News. Justin, Justin. But this is Miami, pal. I'm not going Let's have a Play-Doh party. Show me wax on, wax off. Todd A. Zeller, thanks for joining us for another episode of In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. The 80s will forever be my favorite decade for so many reasons. Songs like Everybody Wants to Rule the World, I Melt With You by Modern English, The Ghost in You by The Psychedelic Furs, Take On Me by Aha, and Don't You Forget About Me with The Simple Minds. Songs like these were burning up the charts helping people to feel good and hopeful and live and dance. There was some sort of hopefulness in the 80s that I just can't get my brain wrapped around, but I know the music speaks volumes to so many, especially those who were there. And it's true, everybody really does want to rule the world. But for the next little while, I'd like you to sit back while I rule a little piece of Spun Counter Guy's world and take you to part two of my interview about his brand new book, one of my favorite reads, The 10 Tracks Mixtape Tasks, a story that has brought back so many good memories of music, young love, spiritual discovery, the relationship and friendship of a brother and sister and a group of friends in high school. The band Tears for Fears comes up in at least uh, one section of the book, and I was just curious: did were you a fan of the band? Uh, because you oh. you devote some 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 words to to uh, to that band. Yeah, I I did love that the first two records especially. Another thing that was true about the book: there was a guy at Walmart. He claimed to have been roommates with one of the guys from Tears for Fears. I don't remember which. They were in India, and the Tears for Fears guy was studying flute. And this guy just had all kinds of stories like that. Just like Australia, I started to wonder if he was just a good storyteller and also a liar. But <laughs> on occasion, something he had said would end up being confirmed from an outside source. But with any band, like you have mixed feelings about sometimes. I mean, it's just like, you know, you love your family, but you want to strangle them sometimes or friends, same thing. And so with Tears for Fears, I remember being really disappointed with the album, The Sowing the Seeds of Love that came out mostly from the music because i think only like one or two songs i really like from that record but also just that you can still love a band and still admit when it comes to history and world politics they have no idea what they're talking about or (laughs) they may have you know just saw a headline and decided to write a whole song about it i remember me and friends having these conversations about uh, mostly you too and all of their ideas and views and, and some contradictions tears for fears had some of those as well and i i remember having some of the 
you know, funny conversations that are probably went on way too long in real <laughs> life. Again, when you're a teenager, uh, everything's vitally important. Everything is scripture. And so you're arguing about <laughs> some song from songs from the big chair. Oh, yeah. There's a great little uh, bit about Insider Magazine spelled I-N-C-I. D-E-R. You have many, many little moments of, of clever wordplay, um, but I I appreciate myself being an Apple guy. I didn't grow up with apples in the house, but I am now. I'm just curious. Did you actually have a, a Mac or Apple computer back when you were a youngster? Yes. I had had a great interest in computers, but it was mostly just looking at books and magazines and seeing these things that seem so far off in the future. And I don't think I ever had a conversation with my dad about them. And you know how sometimes kids kind of sell their parents short and think, oh, he's just into working at the dirty machine shop and working in the garden outside. But one day my dad just comes home with a brand new Apple IIc computer. (laughs) And a stack of magazines because the computer guy he bought it from gave him some. And I think Insider was a real magazine. There was a bunch like that, that had some kind of play off the word Apple or Macintosh. Uh, And in fact, there was some magazine I wanted to subscribe to, and apparently you could get a discount if you were a business. So I put down in the company name space, Apollonia. (laughs) (laughs) If you remember, the highly attractive woman was involved with Prince. Before my dad gave me that computer, oh, it was for the family, but I commandeered it. I was a kind of a sad kid. I, I just felt like the world had dropped a deuce on me in, in some ways. I was very awkward and had no friends. I was persecuted at school. And the only solace I ever got was playing out in the woods or something. But when he got that computer, I found out I didn't need friends, you know? Ah, yeah, yeah. And I was off and running and <laughs> learning how to program and playing games, of course. And I need to thank my dad every day for getting that thing. It really set me on a pretty good path as far as you know, developing problem-solving skills and learning about the world. This is before the internet. You know, mm-hmm. A lot of these games or programs uh, it would expose you to uh, new information. And Anyway, so yeah, I really did have an Apple IIc. I made friends with another guy at Boonville. He had an Apple IIe. That was an earlier version, and it was, and it was compatible, and he would you know, copy stuff for me and um, he had, I guess this is the first experience I ever had with bootlegs, like things that were not officially out. I think me and you think that, we, we think mostly music. He had some bootleg games that I don't think were put out by official companies. They, somebody just made them and they just circulated. And in fact, that's how the very first text adventure game came about, Adventure or Colossal Cave Adventure, whatever you want to call it, but it, it was a game that people passed around. He had a game called Clan Cookout. <laughs> And it was oh my this, word! It was this guy with a flamethrower setting Ku Klux Klan members on fire. <laughs> I can't argue with that concept. It's a very rudimentary game, but it was so hilarious. It, it was great to pull it out every once in a while and just shock somebody. <laughs> oh my goodness! And you can find it on YouTube. Somebody made a little video of of Clan Cookout. <laughs> oh my word! So, I mean, clearly you were ahead of the curve there. I mean, because it was such a rarity, and there, here you were in your small town of how, how, what? Would you, what would you say the population was where you where you grew up? It's about five thousand. Yeah, I was going to say. Around. I think you maybe referenced it actually in in book at some point, but yeah, so, you know, there, there's only a handful of, of actual computer owners or, or Apple owners. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you were ahead of the curve, which I would think informed you on so many other areas of your life today. I mean, you you could program, you teach programming occasionally, right? 
Yeah, this semester I'm teaching uh, again a, another game design and uh, coding class, and I'm using that original program language that a lot of the Infocom games or, or text adventure games were used in the 80s. It's a great way to introduce kids to uh, how to make a little game with mechanics and also how to tell a story. So I, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. I, I always have a little history presentation before the programming gets going. Okay, so there are some reoccurring themes uh, lightly sprinkled throughout the book. Uh, you know, it's it's life lessons, it's uh, moral dilemmas, it's um, being your brother's keeper, so to speak. And and I really appreciated that, but it wasn't overbearing. It, you know, it, it, you, you do some Bible quoting here and there, or at least uh, loose quotes and references to the good book, if you will. And and, and I really appreciated that. And I think it's a, it's a delicate balance of, is this a faith-based book? And, and I guess my question to you is, did you grow up uh, in a religious household? Did you grow up with uh, some of these lessons firsthand? Because it seems like they're, they're pretty prominent throughout in a good way. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I was raised in a Christian home. And I think that tension uh, between you know, trying to live your faith and live in the world, it was always there, even though I, I wasn't very smart or didn't have a much of a theological background or a lot of times I just did it because I was told to or you wanted to imitate good people. I did think about it quite a bit towards the end of high school. I started to really have a lot of questions. I'm sure that you may have went through this also. There was this dilemma of like, how does one be a good Christian in, you know, a secular high school mm-hmm. without being annoying or yeah. or just deliberately wanting people to hate you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> right. And so, yeah, I think some of that is probably in the book because Estrella and TJ wrestle with that. They feel like outsiders in, in that respect. And I still think about it to this day. I, I think it's changed a little bit because the town I live in is a very small town in Kentucky. It's just like if you go to a big town and can assume like Boston, you can assume probably everybody is, is of the same political persuasion for the most part or New York City. And it's a little bit like that here, except maybe opposite. Everybody here is either evangelical or Catholic or charismatic, uh, Pentecostal, you know, all these different things. And mm-hmm. yeah, I also drive a school bus and we're having to deal with the problem. How do we do this in a Christ-like way? I mean, that's they still pray before meetings here and mm-hmm. before ball games and things like that. So I, I realize now I live in a different uh, bubble than what I grew up with because they kept the separation pretty good in school. Yeah, it's it's something I still ponder over, and you want to always want to try to remember to, to do the right thing, and it's difficult, especially when you get angry or you get passionate or you feel like you've been done wrong, and or you want to write people off because you're sick and tired of them, or uh, th- these are the things I, I struggle with today. I think in my 30s and 40s, I was just you know thought I was no good and not worth anything, and so that was, and those are other books I'm sure will come. But yeah, I, I wanted to be a universal book. I wanted people that maybe were atheists to at least understand how somebody might have thought with that background and not be annoyed by it. And I tried to allow that, you know, some of the characters weren't of that uh, mm-hmm. thinking as mm-hmm. well. You know, you have Christians, non-Christians, atheists, uh, conservatives, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, they're all in the book. To me, that's real life. I know a few people that refuse to be friends with people of this or that way of thinking, but 
I can't live that way. And I, I, th- I don't think most people do. You have to like, accept people as they are uh, and not as they should be, even though you may, may want them to be something different or you may have a dis- disagreement. Great so, point. No, great point. So there was a point in the book where there was, uh, I think it was a jean jacket and buttons involved in with one of the characters. And, you know, I could relate to that. It resonated with me because I did that as a kid. I, you know, I, I'd go to a show on the weekend and I'd buy a button from some Christian band and I, I would uh, get all excited to wear it. So, so did that stem from a real experience when you go into the, the buttons and the jean jacket scenario in the book? Yeah, a couple of things. I, I remember in high school that, and especially in church, they would say, hey, you have to be a witness. You got to stand up for Jesus in the public square. I didn't know quite how to do that. But I think at the time, the thinking was wear a shirt. <laughs> I think now just, you know, hey, be a fair person, be a bright light if you can. But so I think I tried a couple of times where I wore like a Petra shirt, for example, and you get questions. I mostly got ridiculed because <laughs> they were big enough that people knew that they were a Christian rock band. But uh, later on, I was working at a place and there was these two women I worked with and they were awful. They would gossip. They were hateful towards other people at the, at the, the business. And I had to work alongside them and I was in uh, HE double hockey sticks. And one of them, I couldn't get over the fact that she claimed that uh, how awesome her church was. She would talk about how great it was, how everybody needed to go. And of course I'm thinking like, well, if they produce people like you. I, I don't think I'm <laughs> going to go. Then I got this idea. What if I called her preacher and say, hey, can you preach on uh, gossip sometime soon? And uh, <laughs> and I never never did do that, but I did have another incident. I was having trouble with somebody who went to a particular church, and I did run into their pastor or somebody high up, and I said, somebody in your congregation really needs a sermon on this topic, whatever it was. <laughs> I don't know if that ever came about, but I still like that idea of going around to get a point across. The book seems really strong on just a, a really good, pure, innocent relationship between the brother and the sister. And I really like that. And uh, I think, you know, we we tend today to, you know, become pretty darn selfish with all the, the media that's in front of us and all the other problems of our, of our own lives and day. But uh, in the book, you really capture a great relationship sort of... Uh, placing trust with one, in one another's hand between the brother and the sister. Uh, is that kind of similar to real life? Does it parallel? Not as much as I wish it was. Me and my little sisters, we had moments where we were super close. And it, it's so sad how humans, especially children, are. I can't think of a time when all three of us were on the same page. It seemed like one always had to get excluded somehow. Mm. So if me and my youngest little sister were buddy-buddy, then my middle sister got left out and, and vice versa. Sometimes they teamed up against me, uh, <laughs> but we did have our moments. And now that we're adults, I think we're, we're there. As I mentioned, I also drive a school bus and I do see it on occasion. It's rare. Like you say, where you see a brother and sister who look out for each other. I remember one time I was picking up a batch of kids from the school, a sister, an older sister was in tears because her little brother didn't get on the bus and she had no idea where he was. Oh. And later I established that he had had to stay after school for some kind of program. But I just remember how she just wept and wept and wept and thought the worst had happened to him. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's sweet. You wonder how long right. that's going to last. 
Well, I really think you captured a beautiful thing, uh, even if it's just moments of, of, of yeah. reality, you know, and I think we all, I think you've referenced, I think you've referenced this before yourself. I mean, we all sort of, um, embellish our own memories to, to the betterment usually, you know what I mean? There's, there's the pain, mm-hmm. but then there's the, the rainbow side of it. And we always, you know, make it a little bit brighter, but yeah, I think capturing, you, you really captured in the book that sense of innocence and trust and, and, uh, you know, just love and loyalty, uh, within family, especially given the fact that she's not, uh, Estrella is not of your own blood. Again, I've seen this a lot with a lot of adoptive families. It's, it's amazing, at least in certain cases that I've been their teachers, how close they are. And even like some situations of like step brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. it's wonderful when you see it. Sometimes they tend to be closer than biological siblings. So Spun, in my mind, not growing up with sisters, you know, it's just myself and, and, and two brothers. I find it really intriguing how well you were able to get into the female perspective of your character. I believe you wield the characteristics within the character really uh, fine and, and convincing. How did you go about that? A lot of it has to do with just now that we're all older and especially talking to women who were teenagers at one time, every once in a while you find one who's super honest about how they struggle with some of the things that girls fall prey to, you know, the, the envy, the, you know, the backbiting, um, this, you know, trying to uh, sabotage another person's life. <laughs> yeah. Every once in a while I meet somebody who just spills it all out and, uh, and tells the things that us guys always wondered if that was really true or not. And of course, guys have their own set of problems that they, they seem to fall prey to. But yeah, so I, I remember that. I think also uh, a girl I knew, she showed me some of her journal and it was interesting to hear the things that she was, you know, worried about or things that were just going through her mind. And it was, you know, pretty immature, but it, it did capture that moment. That, that helped a lot too. I never forgot that journal. So I'm a really visual guy. I grew up around art and sketching and, you know, still really appreciate photography and graphic design and things like that. And I'm really drawn to the cover of your book. I really feel like you captured, you know, this analog uh, cassette uh, moment in time. And I'm just curious what inspired you to go the direction you went with the uh, design, the color scheme. Uh, tell me about the tapes that are uh, on the actual cover. I was struggling with what should be the cover. Of course, the initial idea was just to have a giant cassette. I've seen other books that had already done that. So I took a bunch of cassette tapes that I still had from those years, and I spray painted them, uh, like gold and silver and things like that. And it looked super cool, but I couldn't figure out how to make a cover from it. And I arranged them this way and that. I made it at one point look like a robot but none of them ultimately were any good. And then you, Todd Zeller, suggested, hey, check out this guy, James Smith. He may be able to help you. He's a wizard, you said. <laughs> and 
Indeed. So he or somebody had me take pictures of all the cassettes that I had spray painted. It seemed like it was within 15 minutes. He had this <laughs> cover. <laughs> really, it wasn't very long. He gave me a couple things to choose from, but I was like, that's it. That's the one. It was fantastic. So I have him to thank for it. And I feel like I still don't know if the book is any good, like the, the contents, because you know how you are when you are the, the writer of it. But I know the cover's great. And <laughs> I feel like probably about half the sales I've gotten so far have been from the book cover alone. The other half probably being people that knew me or grew up with me. So I have to thank James for that because it does, you know, definitely catch the eye and you know call up a lot of nostalgia for when cassettes were so important and you know they were like treasures and like man I got the greatest songs on these these tapes <laughs> uh, like they were the the plans to the Death Star or something. <laughs> right, right. Aren't cassettes coming back around again? Isn't there like a new wave of I see some artists every now and then like oh we've re- released something on cassette. Isn't that great? <laughs> it's crazy how it comes back around. Yeah. As but, much as I have great affinity for the cassette. I don't know why anybody would put their music on a cassette right now. I'm I'm with you there, my friend. You know how punks are always trying to make things difficult, and you know for the for a while they were the only ones who were putting things out on vinyl. This is before the vinyl craze mm-hmm. came back around, mm-hmm. and someone was like, you know, oh, that's selling out, you know, and they started to put their music on eight tracks. I'm like. Come on, guys. <laughs> right, right. You know, I'm going to go ahead and ditch my new car um, that doesn't have an 8-track player so I can buy a 1975 version <laughs> with an 8-track player in the dash. Oh, my yeah. goodness. I just think as someone who's been in, in several bands and musical projects, I had a hard time getting people to buy an MP3 or a CD. <laughs> I can't imagine trying to sell 8-tracks out of the back of my car, so to speak. <laughs> So, Spun, who influenced you to listen to the music that was the 10 tracks? I can point to certain people that influenced me to listen to particular bands and genres. As far as this particular music that I chose, like the dance music, I think I found that on my own by buying these uh, compilation tapes, cassette tapes. A lot of times seeking more rap music, but a lot of times those two musics were interchangeable. I remember getting a cassette tape of music to breakdance to or something like that. And it would have hip hop on there, but it would also have like some of these experimental electronic songs. So the song by Conk, Your Life. You can't even figure out where it's coming from. How would you even define this music? Because it just, (laughs) it seemed a little tribal it had kind mm-hmm. of this faux african kind of chant on it it has a, maybe a little bit of latin music on it which at that time i probably had no idea what that was outside of gloria estefan but i just loved it and it's a great song on top of that a lot of those songs just came from crate digging one group you really like, you find out, oh, their producer produces other group as well. And so that's how I found a lot of that. Is there a particular genre of music you like? I'd sound like a politician, but I do like them all. Although I'm very, very picky, even though I like everything from pop, hip hop, country, Afro-Cuban. If a song moves me, you know, I'm going to own it. 
and squirrel it away and you know make it part of my collection with every music genre that I may have dismissed initially, you know, you hear that one song where everything comes together, and you're like, mm. oh, okay, so that's what the rest of this genre is supposed to sound like. So approximately how many mixtapes do you think you've ever made? Roughly, I've made over 250 mixes. But I think when we say mixtape, we think about when the person that assembles uh, X amount of songs to basically give a message to somebody. Generally, it's for a person they are smitten with or or a person they're trying to help get through something. As far as that, I've made a few, but they were never received all that well. So I think I quit doing that a long time ago. On occasion, I'll make mixes for my grandson. He's five. He loves trains, for example. So I've made two train mixes, one from 1920s, 30s, and 40s, all those train songs, and then mm. one from the 80s. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot of train songs, but there are a lot of songs that mention the train. And he seems to get excited by that. The first mixtape that I really put a lot of effort into, there was a girl I knew that was just going through a hard time. And I felt that Part of the reason she might have been depressed was she listened to gloomy music a lot. Mm, yeah. And I'd say, hey, have you ever listened to Katrina and the Waves? It's pretty good. <laughs> I like some gloomy music, but I realize like most of the gloomy music that I hold on to, it has a little bit of hope. Like you're, you're reveling in your sorrow, but it's understood that this is just for a, a short time. And so I did compile a handful of songs that were melancholy yet hopeful and gave it to her and she never said anything about it so either she threw it in the floorboard of her car and never listened to it or maybe she didn't relate to it but again that was probably one of the the times i thought ah i wasted a lot of energy and maybe i shouldn't do that because sometimes i feel like i'm being an annoying evangelical when it comes <laughs> to certain bands and certain kinds of music and mm -hmm. ideas and different things and I think something me and you both did probably was make mixtapes of bands that we really felt got the short shrift, you know, should have gotten more attention. I've done that a lot. Mm -hmm. But again, yeah. more times than not, I, I never get any feedback. So I thought, well, I'll just make them for myself and my grandson. Well, I, I know a little bit about your grandson and he's a, he's a joy to the world, no doubt about it. But I love that you're educating him on uh, good music, quality, you know, quality music and, and, and a variety because you have such a voracious, you know, varietal. It's interesting because I play music all the time when we're playing. And every once in a while, there'll be a particular song that he'll really resonate with. And mm -hmm. I still remember the first song that he wanted to hear all the time was Rascal Flatts version of Life is a Highway. And then the <laughs> second one was Pump Up the Volume by Mars. I like both of them, but the Mars one is especially. And of course, the Life is a Highway is, is originally an 80s song. So that made me proud that on his own, he really like that and wanted to hear them all the time. Just you talking about mixtapes and making them. I'm thinking in my own mind as we're chatting, thinking, I wonder how many I made in my day. I'd have to look back because I saved a lot of them, especially, you know, when I was romancing my ex-wife. Uh, hence, maybe uh -huh. I chose the wrong mixtape song selection <laughs> um, i was always either trying to share exactly like you said about bands i love that i thought needed to be heard more and i would put the best 
track, you know, a couple tracks from one one album. And this is back, especially when I was listening to records and I'd transfer them from vinyl over to uh, to cassette. But yeah, getting the perfect beginning, middle and end, you know, it had to had to be a low to high finish on a high note with the final song or the final track. They just It's quite an art form. I agree. You think uh, about how these days, almost anything that you're really good at, you can make a career out of. And that wasn't always the case. You know, even people who are really good at playing video games you know, are making good money, some of them, right? Right, right. And, and I was trying to think, could you make a living at making mixtapes? And <laughs> in the DJ world, yeah, because the big names will put out mixes once a year, like their top 10 or something. And, you know, they sell pretty well, I think. Well, I can only think of one guy who seems to be able to choose the songs he wants to choose for a soundtrack, T-Bone Burnett. Oh, Otherwise, yeah. most soundtracks are... You know, something that the, the record division of the movie company wants to push some artists or songs. But, uh, oh, to have T-Bone's job. <laughs> Did you ever receive any mixtapes that you still play to this day? No, I don't think anybody has ever given me a mixtape. I can't recall, but maybe the first mixtape I ever remember, my mom's from Alabama, and so we were down there to see her side of the family. And my dad, being the person that he is, always checked the local, you know, we call them Thrifty Nickel up here, but the little buy, sell, and trade magazines. He found a guy that was selling a real, real machine, like a TIAC, I think it was. And I remember going over to this guy's house with my dad and and so dad agreed on the price, I guess. And the guy had all these reel-to-reels tapes that he was just going to give him, something he had already recorded stuff on. But with those machines, you could record over them. Again, I don't know what possessed my dad to do it because it wasn't the music that he liked, but he recorded on cassette a few of these mixes this guy had made. And then gave them to me. And this guy turned me on to like XTC. The cars, well, I should say songs and groups that you didn't hear on the radio as much. Like I knew the cars, of course, but mm -hmm. he was playing some deep cuts that I've never heard on the radio since. And a lot of like, like the B-52s and things like that, which at yeah. that time I had never heard. And I found that cassette recently. It doesn't work anymore. It, it is brittle and kind of turned into dust, the magnetic tape, but I still have it. What I would give to be able to find that guy down in Alabama who made that mix and, and thank him, because again, it did start me down a musical road, so to speak, in the archaeological pit that is my brain. Uh, <laughs> that's the first one that I found. I really want to say that you know, as someone who appreciates films and films of that genre, the 80s and the nostalgia, the, you know, the cultural icon that the 80s are, I really see a screenplay in your book. I really see that detailed story. I, I honestly believe you could have it adapted to, a, you know, to a screenplay quite easily because it's there. I mean, the story's there, the character development is there. And of course, you've got, you pair it with a, you know, a killer 80s soundtrack and you're golden. That would be wonderful. I mean, I sat on this story for 10 years before I finally wrote it down. In my head, it played like a movie, but then you have to come to 
grips that you're not going to run into a movie producer in, in Kentucky. So I thought, okay, even though in my head it's a movie, I have to write it down and and somehow hopefully convey what I want to convey in you know words on a paper. Even though I, I'm not encouraged by a lot of what Hollywood puts out these days, you see some people who tend to get it and make really good films. And I think about like, um, is it Jared Hess who made Napoleon Dynamite? To me, that's an 80s film. My grandfather, that one in. Uh, Adam Goldberg, who, who did the Goldbergs. And of course, that's a great show about the 80s. Yeah, so they're out there. And I, I imagine there's probably all kinds of film students out there too that are trying to put something like that together. I'll, I'll try to work it so you get a cameo in there. If it Please, do. Please do. Please yeah. <laughs> do. <laughs> Passerby number seven. There you go. I like that. So you mentioned that you've had this story rattling around in your head for 10 years. Uh, what kind of discipline does it take after, you know, all your day jobs and all the irons you have in the fire to, to write a book like that? First of all, when something's just in your head, it's, it's not a failure yet. And I think that's a lot of people's hesitancy to, to start a project because then when you start to write it down, then you go back and look at it and you think, oh, this is not that good. And so that's probably why I didn't write it down for a while. I was just in a situation where it was kind of accident where I ended up at a place where there was no TV, no internet, no radio, nothing. I thought, well, I got nothing else to do. <laughs> I might as well finally write this book. And so I was able to crank out the first draft in a month. And then wow. after that, uh, it just becomes a a place of escape in some way, or it, it's almost like taking medicine or getting some good sleep. I now, and my wife is awful understanding that every once in a while I have to go off and write or create or do something. And if I don't, my, my mind's not right. So I, I figure it's better than taking medication. I'm kind of forced to, because if I don't, I get depressed or start to get antsy. And my grandson, I try not to do any work or anything when he's with us, because we have him a couple of days a week because uh, it, it's so important to him. But on occasion, he, he can tell I'm not right. <laughs> and he'll say, Papa, do you need to concentrate? <laughs> and that's kind of the word he comes up with for me to go on my computer and for him to not ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, can you give me 10 minutes? And he'll just play at my feet, you know, with his little cars and trains while I bang out whatever it is that was in my head. And then we're good. Hey, Spun Counter Guy here. I want to thank again Todd Zeller for taking the time to interview me about the book. I also want to thank the readers who sent in questions. And if you want to get the book, you can easily find it on barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and any number of other bookstore outlets. And if you're still in a 1980s mood, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 281 a listen where I interview journalist and hip-hop insider Bill Adler, who talks about his memories of salt and Pepper, Run-DMC, The Fat Boys, Boogie Boys, Houdini, and many others. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 